Good morning. That was very, that was great. So let me ask you to help me out this morning as I begin the message. Would you turn to someone and say, it's a wonderful invitation. Now turn to them again and say, it's really a wonderful invitation. That's great. That was a lot easier than what happened last week. Last week, Corey said, let's get weird. And then he asked everybody to get up and move around and sit in different seats. Now that was a great exercise, except for one person... A woman got up, walked out, and went to the restroom before the sermon started. While she was in the restroom, everybody changed seats. She had been sitting in the same seat for 10 years with her husband. She walked back in the room and had this look on her face like... You could see it from the front. She sat down and finally she realized her husband was sitting someplace else and got up and went over there. So it's a lot easier just to say, turn to the person beside you and say, it's a wonderful invitation. It's a wonderful invitation. Turn to your neighbor beside you and say it one more time. It's a wonderful invitation. Will you please stand now for the reading of the word? What I'm going to be giving you this morning is an invitation to join with us on a journey that we'll be taking all the way to the month of November. For the next two months, we're going to be walking week by week through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be accepting an invitation as a church and as individuals to explore His teachings and to ask ourselves questions. How do these teachings relate to my life and how I live my life in this world today, and how are they relevant to what's happening in the world today. It is my belief that if we will accept that invitation, that we will see some significant changes taking place, not only in our life, but in our family, in the places that we work, in our church, and in our community. And so this journey we're going on is a wonderful invitation to follow Jesus. As we talk about what it means to be a Christian, and I'll say more about this in a moment, Jesus never used the word Christian. He never called people Christians. He called them disciples. And a disciple is someone who has accepted the invitation to follow Jesus, to be his student, to live his teachings. And so this morning, I've intentionally began setting up the series for next week by reading what took place before the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives the invitation for people to follow Him. And I want you to understand, and I want to understand, that this invitation was not just given 2,000 years ago to some people in a book, but He's still giving the invitation to us today to listen, to learn, to follow. Here's the word of God. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the Sea of Galilee, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. And this is significant. Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And what he's doing to authenticate the ministry of Jesus, he is quoting passages from the Hebrew Scriptures. He just drew up a reference from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, which says, a son will be given to us, a child shall be born, he will be bringing a new kingdom to the world, he will be mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and prince of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says one will come who will bring a new kingdom, and that kingdom will be bringing into the world what it is that God wants for the world. So this is significant. This is significant to a first century Christian person that Matthew is saying, in Jesus, that light has come. In Jesus, we see what God hopes for the world and what God hopes for us. And it is there that we hear the first message of Jesus in Matthew, which is the primary message that Jesus proclaimed and taught, which is the message of the kingdom of God. He says, from that time... Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He is issuing that call to us today to leave our boats, to leave our nets, and he's saying to every person in this room, Come, follow me. Jesus then went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom. More than 31 times in this gospel, he talks about the kingdom of God as his primary message and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God for the people of God. And God's people did say. You may be seated. Turn to the person beside you again one more time say it's a wonderful invitation. Now, I imagine that most of you, when you grew up or where you grew up, you didn't consider the word repent to be a wonderful invitation to anything. 
most of us, when we hear that word repent, we have negative associations attached to it. Uh, that, that word has in the past been used uh, to invoke fear or shame or guilt. And I want to argue this morning that really that is a misunderstanding of what the word repent really actually means. If you look at what it means there in the teaching of Jesus, the word repent isn't a word that means feel bad about who you are and change everything about who you are. Instead of the way that it's used here, it's used in a way here to imply that God is doing something different in the world. So turn from one way to a new way of being in the world. It's not so much about remorse and about guilt, but repent is a word that basically means make a decision, make a decision to align your life with this great thing that God is doing in the world. In that light, it makes sense because the kingdom of God is the primary teaching of Jesus. In the kingdom of God, which we hear the whole Sermon on the Mount that follows, explains what the kingdom of God is like. It's a present, it's a here, it's a now reality, and it's breaking into our world, and it comes to our world when we live the teachings of Jesus. And so what this invitation is, is not to a dead, heartless, dry, cold religion, but to a living, fresh, open faith. Two Saturdays ago, early in the morning, a couple of friends of mine, we met down at the, the Kroger, which is near Papa John Stadium, and we met before, early in the morning before daylight, and we ran down Southern Parkway to Iroquois Park. Iroquois Park is a real gem in our city. The top of Iroquois Park may be the highest spot in Louisville. It's dark, we're tired, it's early, and we get to the park, and there's a three-mile loop around the park, and so you run or walk around the park, and then at some point, there's a road that goes up to the top of the park, to a summit, to an overlook, a scenic overlook. It's 1.85 miles. I know what it really is. It is 1.85 miles uphill, in the dark, all the way to the top. So you're running through the park. There's no one out there. It's completely dark. And I've never been to the top. And then suddenly you get all the way to the top, and there it is, this magnificent scenic view of Louisville. We get to the top just as the sun is coming up to the east. The horizon just seems to go on forever. You can see everything. It, it was just a glorious moment, the sun, the light, the view, the green, everything. What was like this now is like this. You can see the four bridges crossing the span of the Ohio River. You can see Papa John Stadium. You can see the Twin Spires. You can see Southeast Christian from there. You can't see our building. <laughs> to me, that's what this invitation is like. This invitation is an invitation to have your horizon expanded, not closed. That the way of Jesus is a way of having your world, your mind, your heart expanded till the world becomes a bigger place. You're open to new ideas, to new ways of thinking, to a new way of living in the world. 
And the way of Jesus is not a closed and restricted and dark life. And in the world we live in, where we see so much pain and suffering and darkness sometimes, it's easy to be overwhelmed by it. But what it is from Jesus is this wonderful invitation to live into the thing that he is bringing to the world and to believe ourselves that the things that Jesus taught will ultimately transform not our life, but the world around us. And it begins with us, that that light that we see on the horizon is in us and in the world and is coming in Jesus, that a light has dawned and we get to be, what a wonderful invitation. No application required, no background check, no resume. Just a simple yes. Yes, I will follow. I want to describe now what I consider to be the three, three reasons why this is a wonderful invitation and what a wonderful invitation is. It is a wonderful invitation, first of all, to a way of being in the world. A way of being in the world. It's an invitation to live a different way in the world. It's an invitation to live the teachings of Jesus in the world. Beliefs are important. What you believe is important. But it's not so much a way of believing in the world as much it is a way of being in the world. The reality is that you can say what you believe, but your actions really demonstrate what you do believe. Beliefs are important. Beliefs shape our actions. But if you say you believe one thing but then live another way, what you really believe is demonstrated by who you are. And so by saying it's a way of being in the world, what I mean is that your actions and your beliefs about Jesus become one thing. Your actions correspond with your beliefs. I love Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is probably the great mystic of the 21st century. He lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had this quote I found captivating. I, I love this. He said that Christianity is a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world that is simple, nonviolent, shared, and loving. However, we made it into an established religion and all that goes with that and avoided the lifestyle change itself. Catch that? One could be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, vain, in the most of Christian history, and still believe that Jesus is one's own personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. The suffering on the earth is too great. I had a routine doctor's appointment this week. I went for a checkup at the doctor, and as I was on the road trying to pull in, there was a lot of traffic, and there was a van in front of me, and there was a woman driving the van, and on the back of the van, she'd plastered every possible political sticker you could put, imagine on the back of her van. And honestly, the, the, the political sentiments were harsh, unkind, hate-filled. And I thought to myself, this woman is really, really brave because I would be scared to put those kind of statements on the back of my car for fear that someone might try to run me off the road or in the least just ding my car with their shopping cart. You're just asking for trouble when, when you put those kind of hateful... And it was some of the most hateful political partisan statements you would ever see on the back of any vehicle. And then it also had statements on the back of the car demonizing her opponents, her political opponents. I was, I was kind of looked at that. And then I realized as I was sitting behind her, there was a big sticker on the top of the van. 
I love Jesus. Now, there's nothing that really bothers me more than when people take the name of Jesus and use it to baptize political partisanship and hatred. It just, I don't like it. In fact, I really don't like it. And so this woman happened to pull in the parking lot where I was going to the doctor, and I parked right next to her. And so when she got out of the car, I walked over to her and said, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to confiscate that sticker on the back of your car. She said, Which one? I said, The Jesus sticker. I said, I'm going to have to take this Jesus sticker. Why? I said, Because you're giving Jesus a bad name. Jesus is a lover, not a hater, and he doesn't, he's not a political ha partisan hack. Not at all. Would you please remember? She said, well, well, who do you think you are? I said, well, I, my name is David Emery, ordained. I didn't say any of that. <laughs> but, but I thought about it. I wanted to say it. But instead, I just said, hello, how are you? I was, I was kind. Now, that's not how I was feeling on the inside, really, but so on. The reason I share that story with you is because there's a lot of different ways to define what a Christian is. You say the name Christian, you'll get a thousand different definitions. Most people tend to associate the name Christian with what people believe. But if you were to ask Jesus, if you were to look at the New Testament or the Gospel of Matthew and ask Jesus, well, what is a Christian? He would say, well, I really don't use that term to describe my followers. I use the term disciple or students or followers. He would say, yeah, it's important what you believe. But what's really important is that your values and how you live authenticate what you believe. If you're going to say you believe in me, be my student, be my follower, and live in my ways in the world as compassionate, kind, loving your enemies. And by the way, he would say, read the Sermon on the Mount and you'll find out what it means to be one of my followers. It's interesting, I have a book here. Uh, it's called Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. Finding answers in Jesus for those who don't believe. It's interesting because the guy in this book does not believe a lot of the traditional views that most Christians believe about Jesus. But he doesn't call himself a Christian. He calls himself a humanist. But it's interesting that he has chosen to follow Jesus and to be a student of Jesus and to live on the basis of the teachings of Jesus. But he doesn't call himself a Christian. On the other hand, you know, me, others of us, we will call ourselves a Christian, but we don't make a real concerted effort to live the way of Jesus. So I think it raises an interesting question. What is a Christian, a person who believes all the traditional things, or a person who lives the way of Jesus? What would Jesus say to the person who lives the way of Jesus, but doesn't believe all the right things, but then at the same time say to a person who says they believe in all the right things, but they don't live there. It's got to be something somewhere in the middle. I think what it does, I, I love this book because it caused me to think about my own life. I've read all these articles recently that say, why do people hate Christians today? And it basically cites hip, hypocrites, judgmental people, people like the woman with the bumper sticker. But I, I've thought about this. I don't think we should blame people like the woman who have the bumper sticker. It does us no good to put up a straw man and knock them down. We should look at ourselves. I think the real reason that people are not in favor of Christianity is because maybe people who understand that Jesus is merciful and kind need to live more boldly. You see what I'm saying? For every person like that, there's a thousand of us who believe that Jesus is living, 
So maybe we need to live more courageously, more boldly, with more of an abundance mindset. The second thing I would say is that, you know what it is? Following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. That's a mouthful. It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's a phrase by Eugene Peterson. He wrote the message translation of the Bible. He said that if you want to become like Christ, it's about making a commitment for a very long time and allowing him to shape us. We forget that the Apostle Peter, he spent three years with Jesus before he ever started teaching, preaching, leading the church. And then you see him being formed over the course of his entire lifetime, right? And what about the Apostle Paul? We forget that the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, spent many years being discipled before he ever planted a single church. You see, I've discovered that for a lot of people, it's really easy to get people interested in Jesus, but it's really hard to get people to sustain a long-term commitment. Because we want a microwave transformation as opposed to a crockpot transformation. Oftentimes people will come up to me and say, David, I want to be a pastor just like you. That's great. They say, well, what do I have to do? Then I begin to cite all the requirements, you know, four years of college, uh, three years of a seminary degree, oversight by an ordination committee, all this stuff you got to do. And immediately to see the look on their face drain out and say, okay, I think I'll do something else. They lose interest very quickly. Well, let me ask you this question. Would you want to have heart surgery performed on you by somebody who just went to one webinar on how to do a bypass? Would you want to get a tooth pulled by a dentist to watch a YouTube video to learn how to pull a tooth? Would you want to have a minister who had not been properly trained and formed over a long period of time instead of just making a decision to be one and then becoming one? It takes a long time to form and shape a person of faith. It takes a long... I'm not, we're all ministers. I'm not just talking about... But we're all committed to this long-term development. I had this really kind of profound experience this week with my mother. My mother called me, and she's just telling me, listen, my mom's telling me all kinds of stuff right now. It's just really interesting to see this relationship with her change. She said, you know why we didn't have three kids? I said, I didn't even know you even thought about having three kids. She said, your father and I, we wanted three children, but we decided just to have two. And I said, why? She said, because your father's dream from the moment you were born, was to send you to college. Because you know your dad and I, neither one of us graduated from high school. We grew up poor. We wanted advantages for you, for you and your sister that we never had. Now, the college isn't everybody's dream. You don't have to go to college. But it was a dream for my dad. So he told my mom, he said, we are not going to be able, it's going to be hard enough to send two kids to school, let alone three, on the salary that I make as a milkman. When I was born, my dad made that commitment over a long period of time. And so when I now, I go, it's just changed the way I look at the degree on my wall. When I look at that degree, I don't see my achievement. I see the achievement of my father over a long period of time. I put in four good years. My father put in 21 good years. A long obedience to a long commitment over a long time produced results. That, that leads me to my third point that I think is really significant is, do you know when it comes to doing this, do you know how this all happens? Do you know how we're able to do it? Do you know how we're able to, to have this long obedience and how we, become, we start living in a new way? 
We get to do it together. There is this myth that being a Christian or a follower of Jesus is a solitary enterprise. No, it is not. We do it together. We are a part of the body of Christ. We all develop and shape one another. Back to that degree on the wall, there's another degree right next to it, and it's my ordination certificate. If you look at the ordination certificate, you will see all these names on that certificate of people who contributed to my personal development to grow me as a pastor, as a person. You see the name of one of the older ladies who taught me junior high Sunday school, taught the Bible. You'll see the name of the minister that baptized me. You see the name of the New Testament professor who, who told me I was awarded a scholarship to study in Germany, but who paid for the trip himself out of his own pocket and never told me. You see, the dean, the dean of the seminary at Vanderbilt, who gave me a scholarship, and you will see, and they're not on the paper, all the churches that gave money to Vanderbilt to pay for my development. And there was all those people at a church in Lubbock, Texas that I never met who sent a check every year to pay for all my books. And then there was the older women, the older, older widow women at Waynesboro Christian Church who put up with my terrible preaching, my impulsivity, and fed me every weekend and sent me back to school on a full stomach. And my mother and father. I became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that ordination was everybody laying their hands on me. We get to do this together. That's why Betty and Dan Clifton, sitting right here, have been teaching three and four-year-olds for 25 years or more in our church. That's why, yeah. It's why Skipper Martin, who we know there is something seriously wrong with him, we... It's why he's been teaching middle school students the Bible for 38 years or more. It's why Marilyn Fleming and her husband Don Fleming, who has since passed away, started a marriage mentoring program where they came alongside couples and collected other couples together to mentor people to get them off to a good and healthy start. So the day that they say, I do, they've been prepared and are set for the future. The development, the, amen, the development of being a fully devoted follower of Christ over the lifetime that begins to have a demonstrable influence in the world where we live, it happens inside of you, inside of And here's the best part of all this. You don't have to go anywhere to follow Jesus. You know why? Because you follow him where you live. You follow him and you live his teachings in your home, in your family, the place where you work. And let me just drop this one on you. If I can remember it is we make the secular sacred by the way we live the kingdom in it. So I was thinking, you know, they had to leave a net behind. What is it that you have to leave behind? Hmm? What is the net you had to leave behind? What is it that's holding you down and holding you back? So let just a personal thing. Is it fear? Is it pain? Is it sorrow? Is it wealth? Affluence? Is it bitterness? 
Is it the need for control? Or maybe, maybe you're one of those people who you have all these understandings of who God is, they're not helpful to you anymore. And you're holding on to an old way of thinking about God that's getting in the way of you having your horizon open. Maybe the way that you're looking at God has closed you in as opposed to opening you up, and maybe you need to do this today to say, I don't know where you're going to take me, but I want to see a new horizon, a new view. What is it that's holding you back? 